Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I'm Ashim Singh. Uh, I'm Director of the RSA's Research on Economy, Enterprise and Manufacturing. It's my great pleasure to welcome you all here for today's very special event. Before we begin, before we begin um, yeah, hands up. Are there any economists in the house today? Oh, dear. Yeah, well, <laughs> brace yourselves, because we are, for the next hour, about to get a kicking. Um, <laughs> Because today we are going to deliberate the notion that we have been corrupted, not just harmed, but corrupted by economics. And I think we have just the right guest to debate this idea. Dr. Jonathan Aldred is a fellow lecturer and director of studies in economics in the Department of Land Economy at Cambridge University. He spent over 20 years thinking, teaching and writing about the ethical foundations of economics and how they've shaped modern life. He contends that economics wields an outsized influence on our lives and values and has affected our common sense morality. He joins us today to talk about about his new book, which I have here, well-thumbed copy, well worth reading, Licensed to be Bad, How Economics Has Corrupted Us, which he tells the story of how a group of economic theorists changed our world and how a handful of ideas, from free-riding to nudge, seeped into our decision-making and infected almost every aspect of our lives. Now, reading the quote on the back of my well-thumbed copy, it says, Welcome to the topsy-turvy world of modern economics, where behaving badly is not just normal, but definitely smart and even virtuous. And those are not my words, but the words of Harjun Chang. So I think we'll be in good hands today. And in that vein, can I ask you all to put your hands together and welcome Jonathan to the stage. So the way we're going to do this is a little bit different to usual. Jonathan and I are going to have a little bit of a fireside chat uh, without the fireplace. And I'll try and leave some time at the end for you to ask questions. So let's get into it. Jonathan, perhaps you could start off by telling us what inspired you to write this book and why you've got it in for all us poor economists. (laughs) Well, I think um, it's a story that needed telling, to be honest. Um, (laughs) a story of the way in which economic values and ways of thinking have kind of woven, got woven into everyday life in a way that I just don't think we realise. You know, it's, it's very insidious. So, you know, um, ideas like, you know, it's smart to be selfish, the way in which we, um, you know, all aspects of life have kind of got a weighing up of costs and benefits built into them. And that, 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 that economistic way of thinking of weighing up costs and benefits, as I say, it's got into all areas of life, not just what used to be thought of as the economy. Um, and the effects on, on politics. So many people have lost faith in political processes and democracy, really, as a way of addressing society's problems. Um, so all that, I think we can see um, that transformation in our thinking has... Um, has come out of economics, and it's been a relative... I mean, as these things go, it's been a relatively rapid transformation. We're just talking over the last 50 years or so, over just a couple of generations. So if you take the the immediate post-war generation, you might say the motto of the immediate post-war generation would be something like, doing your bit. Okay, doing your bit. Um, Whereas nowadays, uh, so that's like doing your bit for some collective project, collective endeavour, collective task. Nowadays... Uh, people uh, tend to let themselves off the hook, I'd say, when asked to contribute to some collective project or collective effort. They'll say things, they'll think things like, well, you know, um, it makes no difference whether or not I contribute because the project will go ahead without me. 
My, my contribution's too small to make a real difference. Or maybe they'll think, well, you know, maybe my contribution does make a tiny difference, but the cost to me is greater than the benefit to the project. So it's kind of fair enough. It's legitimate for me to, to opt out. Like climate change, for example. Yeah, and people... So, so I, one of the things I'm at pains to emphasise is that economics, it's not just this stuff out there. It's not, you know, it's not just what's going on in the city of London and big decision makers. Just in, in everyday life, people may you know, think... With that kind of way of thinking... Um, which has been called free riding, that way of relying on the contributions of others and, and opting out of contributing yourself because you say, well, it's going to happen anyway. That way of thinking, um, you know, people think, well, why bother to vote? Why bother to do your recycling? Why bother to um, put money into the honesty box in the office for some coffee? Why bother to pay for online content when you can view it for free? It's, you know, it's, 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 it's that, that way of thinking, what's in it for me, and that way of that disconnect between cause and effect, or at least a different way of seeing the relationship between cause and effect to what that doing my bit generation, uh, the way they thought. Um, so that's just one example. Um, but this is, uh, you know, this, this really matters because I think unless we start to sort of lift the lid on this, and see the way in which these economic ideas have got kind of woven into, into our everyday thinking, taken for granted, then um, we can't really understand where we are as a society today. You know, the, the economic rules which kind of govern the way we, we live today, we need to understand how they got to be there, how they got to be taken for granted. Um, and unless we can see how we got here, we can't begin to think about how things could be different how we could have gone a different path, and how it's still open to us to go a different path in the future. Um, I mean, just thinking of other examples, um, if you... I mean, one thing I want to get away from is the idea that some people kind of look at this book for a few seconds and think that basically I'm saying that people nowadays are somehow uh, <coughs> not so nice is in previous generations. <laughs> you know, so at some fundamental level, people are more selfish, less virtuous than previous generations. And of course I'm not saying that. It'd be a kind of absurd thing to say. What I'm saying is that um, behaviour, which was once seen as bad, has been reframed, subtly reframed, and now seen as good, or at least acceptable. So behaviour which just a few generations ago would have been seen as um, selfish, unfair or maybe stupid and counterproductive or just plain wicked is nowadays just a few generations later seen as smart rational the natural thing to do you know so so natural and obvious that we don't really question it and think about it people don't kind of challenge that idea that well you know it makes no difference whether or not i contribute so so that's perfectly rational of me to opt out but people don't challenge that um and you can see it in that, that, that reframing, uh, another example I use, if you think about the, the one, one common reaction to the great financial crisis, to, if we wind back and think about 2008, 9, 10, um, a, a common reaction was to say, well, um, a lot of this uh, disgraceful behaviour um, by uh, bankers and other um, financial actors in the City of London, um, if they weren't properly regulated. That was, the, that was the answer. They weren't properly regulated, so it's blame the regulators. And there's a lot of rhetoric around it being the fault of the regulators. Blame the regulators. Well, you know, that's a bit like blaming um, the police if your house is burgled. 
Okay, I mean, sure, we can all say there should be more police about and on duty and so on and so on. But it, you know, let's be clear. In the end, it, it's the burglars' fault. Okay, um, that's where the blame first and foremost lies. Um, so what we so we sort of say things like, oh yeah, but you know, if if you leave this loophole in the regulatory system, this opportunity for bankers to to cream off money and walk away, then of course they'll exploit us. People say things like, well, bankers will be bankers. Bankers will be bankers. Again, as if it's natural and inevitable. And just by kind of conceding that ground and saying bankers will be bankers, you know, if, if, if we stop this banker, then somebody else will step in. We're basically giving them a license to be bad. You know, we're, we're, we're authorising it or legitimating it in some way. Brilliant. It was, I, I was really struck there when you... Um when you were talking about where we've got to now and how it's, you know, it's, it's, it's impossible to have an account of where we're at now without having a, a sort of fairly detailed account of how we came to this point. And you know, what I really loved about the book was that it's, sort of, it's, re it's not just a kind of dry economic treatise, but it's actually a really fascinating series of pen pictures of really interesting characters. You know, you've got the sort of the Mont Pelerin group, the Hayek's, of this world, you know, and, and what they brought to the table. You've got the Chicago School, you know, uh, the Milton Friedmans of this world, of course, Richard Posner and his law and economics movement, Buchanan. You've got this kind of, this incredible sort of Dr. Strangelove figure of, you know, von Neumann, you know, uh, the Rand Corporation and all of the folks that are kind of buzzing around that, that bit. And, um, you know, and, 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 and these are kind of, uh, these are very powerful men, and they usually are men, who are having this sort of all inordinate, men. all men. Not usually are, they were all men. I stand corrected, and oh, I sit corrected, and, and quite right. And, you know, it feels like something was happening between the period of about 1950 and 1990, when all of these people sort of won their Nobel Prizes, like Gary yeah. Becker won his Nobel Prize. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, what, what do you think, you know, was there something particularly um, sort of fertile in the environment that was conducive to the kind of harmful ideas that you're talking about? Was there something happening in the ether that really made, you know, made all this come about? What, what do you think were the causes of it? Okay. Um, so there's no, you know, there's no simple magic bullet or simple one-line answer to that. Um, here are some of the ingredients, I think. Um, one of them is uh, the way in which, uh, well, again, as a long story you could say but there's you know some economists started to get involved with government planning processes during the second world war and very much uh running a planned economy and asking questions like you know in the uk you know what how can we control food supplies so that you know there's maximum nutrition um from the you know what we can produce food wise domestically so you've got this kind of mathematical calculation coming into government by economists and that was seen to be very useful. Mm. Um, so they, they'd already got these kind of links with government. And then, of course, the moment, by the time you're in 1945, 46, you're already in the Cold War. And particularly in the US, there was a, you know, there was a paranoia that descended straight away. Yeah. And, and it was seen not just as um, a war to be fought with you know, weapons and rockets and tanks and so on, but uh, an, an intellectual war to be fought with ideas. And the way in which you know markets and and freedom and the market economy of the West was under threat from the rise of communism, and of course at the time it's you know remember right through to the end of the 1950s, the Soviet Union seemed to be keeping up, or indeed when it came to the space race, um, beating the U.S. So so um, it was you know 
it was about defending so there's an ideological element there about defending market values and then you can tell a story about responding to some of the ideas that came out of communism and said that planning's better and here's why so, so there was a kind of theoretical response to that why planning is not better and why markets are efficient and so on and so on so there was that um, and then there were these little stories like I was saying you know um, how can we kind of how can we kind of war game uh, against the Soviet Union when it's like a collection of people? We're not, we're not, you know, it's not just Stalin we're up against, it's the Politburo. So how do we think of the Politburo as a collection of people individually when this, 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 this budding idea of game theory that was coming out? Yeah. So how do we think of a collection of people? And that idea of how do we kind of aggregate, how do we draw together the views of a collection of people to get, to get the kind of group view is what became was what was behind this kind of mathematical view of collective expressions of views which is called social choice theory which then turned into a kind of critique or was used as a critique of, of voting systems so you know who would have thought that came out of asking a question well how can we think of the of the collective view of the politburo in a mathematical way so that, so that, you know there are, there are loads of different strands there there's 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 wanting to kind of mathematize economics and make it a science then you've got i've not mentioned the montpelerand society yeah. what they were responding to and up against they thought three freedom was on the threat you know hayek said the we're on the road to serfdom so then that was they thought about seeding ideas through the business communities which were more sympathetic um, in terms of, you know, pushing back the state. Um, and the Reagan yeah. and Thatcher governments, of course, it all sort of shows through. Indeed, yeah. indeed. So, I mean, it was, it, so it was a kind of fertile time because it was a time when uh, the idea of um, um, applying science to social problems seemed to have worked in certain ways during the Second World War and people were optimistic that it worked again. Yeah. There, was, there was the sort of, uh, the money was behind that kind of way of doing economics because from the military and from government in terms of, the, you know, these kind of military kind of think tanks were where lots of, like the Rand Corporation, where lots of these economists worked. Yeah. So there was money behind it. Um, and then there's, there was the reaction to the collectivism um, of both during the Second World War and then, you know, obviously the dominance of Keynes and the welfare state post-World War, there's a reaction to that. So there's an intellectual group, Montpelerin Society and their followers, battling against that. And Milton Friedman was, was you know, hitched to that too, um, as you know, anti-state. Uh, yeah, I'll stop. I mean, that's, that's some of it. That's some of why, why it was a kind of fertile time. Yeah, that's, no, that's and. What's really interesting when I was hearing you talk there, you know, this idea of the math mathematization of society and the attempt to do that by a few radicals, if you like, and that's often what the right accuse the left of. The right often accuse the left, uh, the left of being inhumane, of uh, statist, of trying to plan everything, of trying to, uh, you know, to, to sort of set, you know, of not being pro pragmatic enough and not responding to human instinct and intuition. Um, would you say though that the, if you like, the malaise? the radical malaise that you see emerging from this time, would you say it's a disease of the right or is that too reductive? Uh, it is too reductive um, because, you know, just, you know, I'm not saying, I'm not claiming that. I, I mean, I, I hope I've, I've kind of, I talk, I cover in the book, um, I'd like to think I cover all the key ideas in post-war economics, which are all kind of microeconomics, economics of the small, but that's where any economist would say the action intellectually, almost all the action intellectually has happened in economics post-war. It's been microeconomics, post-war, post-Keynes. 
Um, so I think, you know, in, 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 in the cast of characters I look at in the book, um, many of them have got kind of right-wing ideologies and right-wing motivations, but, but plenty don't as well. So, um, so they, they were, you know, they, they, saw, they saw themselves as scientists, they saw themselves as, as building mathematical models that were entirely politically neutral. Um, yeah. And there was Ken Arrow, who was in the book, it, it sort of, he was responsible for sort of democracy is impossible yeah. ideas. You know, he'd kind of worked it out, as it were, through his impossibility theorem, and he, yeah. he decided it just wasn't, wasn't possible. And, um, and, and he was actually a socialist, is that right? Yeah, yeah, indeed. I mean, so it, not one of his widely known um, uh, works, but, you know, in the 70s, I do mention it in the book, he published this cautious case for socialism. So he was someone who'd been presented as the kind of bogeyman as, 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 by then as, as behind this, this um, mathematical assault on democracy, mathematical theorem that proved that, you know, there was no ideal voting system, it couldn't be done. Um, but actually, you know, he was saying, you know, this paper he published, A Cautious Case for Socialism. And that was within the context of the 1970s, where, you know, to talk about socialism was something well on to the left of, of where we are now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, no. I, I, when I was when I was reading the book, there were times when it felt a little bit like a Louis Theroux documentary. So you know, it's sort of like you know, he does these. You know, Louis Theroux does these. For those who don't know, he he does these sort of investigations into kind of American subcultures and American cults, and then he sort of he does this very sort of well, you know, what's going on here? Then he does this in very sort of even-handed fashion, and. Yeah, you paint these incredible pictures, these scenes of, you know, there's that great meeting between uh, Milton Friedman and Ronald Coase where, you know, over dinner and everyone's very brash and loud, determined yeah. to disagree with Coase. And at the beginning of the evening, sort of all 20 who were present or 21 or whatever it was, yeah. with Friedman. And then over the course of the evening, through Coase's arguments, they were all Coaseans by the end of the evening, even Milton Friedman. And suddenly Coase became this great totem of the Chicago School Right, to the extent, actually, that they started misrepresenting totally. some of the things totally. that Coase was saying. Totally. And they would sort of, you know, they would, uh, they would, you know, harangue and dismiss and go after anyone who didn't agree with the critic, call them traitors and all the rest of it. And as I was reflecting on these various episodes, um, one word kept on emerging. Um, actually, I'm talking about it right now. The word that emerges, the word that I'm thinking of is Twitter. But that's not the word that I was thinking of. The word was cult. And it struck me that what we're talking about here is economic cultishness. And I wonder if, A, if, if, if you recognise that as a sort of descriptive, in a descriptive sense of what was happening, but also, do you think that we suffer from economic cultishness today? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, people talk about market fundamentalism. Um, the problem with market fundamentalism, and we'll talk about that, is it's easy to paint it into a corner as being, well, there's this bunch of, of loonies who, are, who, 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 you know, who would, who would, you know, sell your baby for the highest bidder and so on. And we can, we can get onto some yeah. of these people that are in the book. But you know, and we, and 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 okay, the, the, but we needn't worry about that because no one really would go that far, and we can kind of box them away and put them in a corner. Um, but so what I was trying to get at with one of the things I'm trying to get at with the book is that is that the kind of cult of economics, economics as a kind of religion, as a way of of thinking is, is pervasive in society. It's not just being boxed off and put in a corner and in, in, in taken to extremes. Um, but clearly we do, um, I mean, you know, economists are kind of seen as high priests 
and we uh, defer to them, and we ask them, we ask them, pose our most troubling questions to them. And one, you know, one of the things I'm trying to do with the book is change the relationship that we have with economists, make it much less deferential and much more. Um, well, we need much more acceptance of the fact that economists don't know the answers to a lot of the questions they're asking. And sure, um, um, well, here's the thing. Um, you know, there's all these, most of these jokes, you know, about economists or, or lawyers or any other profession, you know, how many economists does it take to change a light bulb? All those kind of jokes. Well, most of them aren't very good. How and many one does it take? Uh, well, there's, there's none because you leave it to the invisible hand or there's loads of other versions. <laughs> anyway, um, um, so that most of these jokes aren't very good. And what I'm going to tell you is, 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 a, uh, is a definition of economist, in, and most people don't get it, and that's why well, it's not a good joke, but it, it, really, it really nails it for me, an aspect of what it means to be an economist. Um, an economist is someone who answers questions because they've been asked. That's it. Okay? <laughs> now, the point of that... Is the, the implicit in that is the point is there are questions that economists are, a, are answering that they're not particularly qualified to answer, but they answer them because they've been asked. So although they're not qualified to answer those questions, we're asking them those questions. Um, so, you know, part, sure, the economist should say, no, I don't know how to answer that question, okay? Or, or we, I can only give you this limited kind of answer to that question in these ways and all the and qualified and so on and so on. So the blame, if you like, lies with economists for not being more uh, modest about what they can claim, what the knowledge claims they can advance. But also the blame lies with us in the sense that we keep, we have a question we want answering and because it's a question we want answering, we want there to be someone out there who can answer it. Okay, and a lot of, the, and you know, there's a, a chapter in the book about uncertainty and it's so true there that we want to be able to quantify the future. We want to be able to quantify uncertainty as a way of taming it and getting it under control. And so, um, and you know, with the financial crisis, one of the reasons behind the financial crisis with these models that assume that all kinds of um, one-off events could nevertheless, nevertheless be represented statistically, I won't get into the technicalities, and, and through that, those statistical assumptions, you can some, somehow put a number on some possible event, a probability on some likelihood of some f possible future event. Now, the reason, one reason why economists emerged and financial economists emerged to answer those questions is because people wanted answers to those questions because, of course, once you can quantify risk, you can dice it and slice it and sell it on and so on. So, it, it, you know, the, it's both sides. Yeah. And I suppose, I mean, you talk about the financial crisis, and that's an obvious example where, if you like, economic conventions and assumptions met their nadir. Sort of, there was a Waterloo moment almost. And we've, we've really been, we really haven't recovered. I think the discipline hasn't really recovered from it, to be honest. We're and still, the economy hasn't. And the economy hasn't as well, of course. Um, but the book actually goes much wider than that, doesn't it, in terms of the impact of the kinds of thought and thought process that we've been talking about hitherto for on the situation we have today. So you talk, yeah. for example, about democracy, you know, you talk about climate change and our yeah. approach to climate change as well. What do you think are the most harmful aspects, if you like, of our current situation um, that have been influenced by this group? Well, uh, it's hard to know how to say what's the most harmful, but I mean, climate change is a good one to pick, isn't yeah. it? Because if we get that wrong, then it's game over. Um, so, um, and some people say, you know, who've, who've looked at the book or, or I've talked, and they say, well, this is all very well, but the book's kind of backward-looking, 
And economics isn't like that now. You know, we've fixed it. It's, we've moved on. It's sorted out. So economists these days aren't the kind of mathematical theorists that they used to be. And we've got big data. We, we, you know, we model everything empirically. We've got the numbers. We don't have this uh, reductive, homo economicus, robotic view of how people think. Instead, we've got behavioral economics, which is a much richer and more realistic picture. Now, we can, we can go through those line by line. Um, but, but one response, one simple response to come back to climate change about how you know, there are plenty of economists out there who aren't, who don't seem to have changed, and, and it's dangerous what they're saying. Let's look at Bill Nordhaus. Bill Nordhaus won the Nobel Prize just last October, the most recent winner. And in his um, Nobel Prize winning acceptance speech, so really recently, okay, last October, he said that the optimal amount of global warming, and that's the word that economists use, optimal, the optimal amount of global warming is four degrees. Okay? So where did that come from? Where did four degrees come from? Well, I mean, I can't have that thought without the word arrogance coming to mind, but I'll just put that on the table and we'll move on. To, to why? Where did that number come from? Well, again, there's a, there's a long technical story, but the key difference between Bill Nordhaus and four degrees and the international scientific consensus on two degrees at most is that um, Bill Nordhaus comes to his answer by doing a cost-benefit analysis, basically, yeah. by saying, let's put a monetary value, let's monetize all the benefits of controlling, of reducing climate change and all the costs. And if we do that, he comes up with four degrees. So implicitly in that, the, the harms of climate change don't have a very big number attached to them. They're not big costs. And that's not, and if you look into the history of this, it's not so surprising because basically he's trying to boil down the harm of climate change to an impact on GDP, a percentage of GDP. Well, if you look at the uh, First World War, the impact on GDP of the First World War was neutral. And the impact on GDP, global GDP, of the Second World War was probably positive. Depends how we calculate it. But no one's saying that the First World War and the Second World War weren't global catastrophes. So, but Bill Nordhaus doesn't seem to have noticed this. So, you know, just at the basic <laughs> level, um, I think that's, that's that question, what should we, how, how serious should we take climate change? How much action should we take? That's an ethical question. It's so obviously an ethical and political question. It's what kind of society do we want to leave for future generations? In, in all the kind of multi-dimensional ways we can think about that. That <coughs> rich question. What kind of society do we want to leave for future generations? It's an ethical, political question. Why on earth should we be asking economists to answer that by monetizing the, all the impacts, good and bad? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, I think that's a very powerful statement. And, and, and in our increasingly kind of polarised political environment as well, you had some reflections. There were some reflections in the book on the impact of this kind of economic thought on, on democracy as well, weren't there? Yeah. Um, well, where do we begin? <laughs> um, I suppose it's... Uh, I don't think people realise how... Uh, well, I mean... Let's start from the beginning. So we've got uh, the stuff that many people take for granted about uh, uh, democratic, the, the actors in a democracy, the politicians, the bureaucrats, and the voters. People take for granted this idea that 
most people are, most of those politicians, bureaucrats are voted on, most of the time, essentially selfish and self-interested. Now, um, obviously, there's a complicated story to be told about where that's come from. But I think it would be astonishing if an important part of that story didn't come from the fact that in the 1960s, a bunch of economists developed an economic theory of politics that said politicians, bureaucrats and voters are selfish and they are rational to be selfish and you know, they ought to be selfish. That makes sense for them to be selfish. And let's trace through the implications of that. And say it, 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 that economic theory emerged in the 1960s, and, and then and we can trace the way in which that's filtered into wider society. And one, and you, you really know how ingrained that's got when politicians basically uh, basically saying, "Don't trust me, I'm a politician." Now, what do I mean by that? I mean all the times when politicians say, "Well, look, I know you don't trust me," so the answer is, "I'll give my power away." Somebody else. Like a Quango, for example. Well, no. What about the Bank of England? Yeah. That would be a classic example. People take that for granted. Let's, central bank independence is the right and proper thing to do because we can't trust, we can't trust bankers. We're going to, I mean, here's a little side prediction. We're going to come back to this issue right uh, soon when we realise the only way out of uh, the, the deficits we're in globally and the only way we're going to get demand is through printing money, basically. And um, that's technically possible, and you can do it without inflation. Bit of an aside here, sorry, tangency, but I think it's interesting. Um, you can do it; it's technically possible. Um, but the question, but but what will be said? Because it's already been said by the IMF and in the in the technical documents. Well, yeah, technically we could print money, and technically you won't get inflation if in a in a predicament like we're in today, where there's lots of undercapacity in national economies and globally, so we can avoid inflation. But we mustn't do it because the politicians would get carried away. They'd never stop. And that really is the, the argument to be used for saying there's a taboo on printing money as a... As a you know, what's, when I say printing money, what, what's popularly called, you know, things like the Green New Deal, the stuff that uh, um, Ocasio-Cortez has been pushing in for the Democrats in the US, but the Green New Deal ideal, obviously, in, in the UK... Um, the Greens, obviously, and the Liberal Democrats and Labour are coming on board with that. Where, where, where do you get the massive resources for that, going back to tackling climate change? Yeah. Um, anyway, that was a digression, wasn't it? Um, where did we get on to that? Uh, we talked about... Um, um, so that the Bank of England, central bank independence. Um, that was embraced because it was, again, just taken for granted. Well, no, we can't trust politicians, can we? So let's, let's, let's outsource democracy, if you like, or, or, or outsource the, 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 the democratic power that politicians have got. Let's hand it over to Quangos or, or the Monetary Policy Committee, who, I'm sh you know, who are good people and have got um, noble motives. Don't, get me, don't, don't, don't misunderstand. But the fact that, that that's never re it's, still, it, it's really beyond the pale. You know, if, if John McDonnell were to stand up and say, are oh, we going to you know, um, reverse that, we're going to take back the um, Bank of England and interest rate setting uh, decisions into under political control, there'd be there'd be panic, and I I can understand why there would be a reaction on the financial markets and so on. But the fact we're not really having that debate, or the fact that it's seen as as so far removed to have that debate, says how shrunken our kind of ambition for democracy has become. And surely. Um, we can't, you know, if we've got a problem where we don't have trust in politicians, the answer isn't, okay, take the, way, the power away from the politicians and give it to unelected people. That, you know, that can't be a solution, can it? 
it, it, can, it can be a kind of fix for particular problems. And I'd be the first person to say, yeah, sometimes it's better to give decision-making to a bunch of experts, depending on the nature of the problem. I think interest rate setting is an interesting one because, again, it's so political because the distributional effects of interest rate setting are, are front and centre. It's the same with quantitative easing, as we've, as we've seen with quantitative easing. Um, whether you think it's been, uh, had a stimulating effect on the economy or not, um, all sane economists agree that the benefit has worked through inflating asset prices. So all the people who've got assets, i.e. the richer people in society, have benefited in terms of share prices and house prices going up. And the people without assets, the poor, have lost. So QE has been bad for inequality. I mean, no one can really dispute that. So, you know, a technical decision, this obscure technical thing, quantitative easing, no one knew what it meant, um, actually directly had distribution implications. So should we have just given that decision to unelected people of the Bank of England? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so again, you know, so that's a historical thing I'm focusing on, I suppose, you know, the independence of the, of the Bank of England to draw... I just want to draw attention to how far we've moved away, if you like, from democracy already without, without realising it. Yeah. I mean, I think, <clears throat> I think, I think this is a good uh, moment to pivot, actually, because, um, you know, we are, we are being sort of relentlessly negative in our characterisation of, of, of economists. Um, and I, I, think, I think I want to hit rock bottom before, <laughs> before kind of uh, bouncing back up and getting into the hope thing. Um, one of the passages of the book that I really love is where you, uh, you absolutely excoriate Nobel laureate Gary Becker. So there's okay, great we're free going to, This is the bottom. This, we're going to go to the bottom, and then I promise you we'll bounce back up. And he's the sort of, the sort of archetypal economist who describes kind of faintly common sense things in this kind of horrible, robotic, mathematical way. I actually particularly love the passage where uh, Becker talks about love. He gives his definition of love and relationships. Um, I, actually, I'd like to read it, if I may, because it is hilarious. Um, so here's Becker on love. Um, it can be said that M1 loves F1 if her welfare enters his utility function. Interesting choice of <laughs> verb there. And perhaps also if M1 values emotional and physical contact with F1. Clearly M1 can benefit from a match with F1 because he could then have a more favourable effect on her welfare and thereby his own utility. And because the commodities measuring contact with F1 can be produced more cheaply when they are matched than when M1 has to seek an illicit relationship with F1. The commodity that they're referring to actually here uh, is children. Um, I mean, that's madness, isn't it? I mean, you know, so I, I, I mean, I'm, I, I think I'm totally with you when, you know, the sort of the nefarious, sort of harmful influence of this kind of thinking on aspects of our life. I mean, there is a sort of real, real argument to sort of excise it. Can I just cut in with, with, with Becker? I mean, yeah. uh, John Kay, who I think still does write for the Financial Times, um, nailed it perfectly when he said Becker is beyond parody. <laughs> okay, you don't need to, you know, he just, just read, just, it, out. Just read yeah. it out. Exactly, <laughs> he's beyond parody. Um, but another one of Becker's greatest hits um, was uh, uh, late nineteen eighties. He um, had a very influential op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, I think it was, where he said, "Bright <coughs> idea. I know what we can do." Um, we can sell citizenship to the highest bidder, national citizenship. So, well, of course, we now will do that today, don't we, in European countries? I mean, we don't talk about it. We don't boast about it particularly. Well, Malta does. Malta says you can come and become a Maltese <coughs> citizen 
You know, in the UK, I think the quickest route you'd have to spend, invest five million. But all you need to do is, you know, buy a house in London, um, five million, there you are, invested in the economy, <laughs> boom, boom. So, so um, that, that was seen as, um, that was, that's where the idea comes from. You know, no one was seriously suggesting and would have been laughed at until Gary Becker proposed it. And of course, a few years after that, Gary Becker was a Nobel Prize winner. <laughs> you know, respected, high status, and there you are. Yeah, no, Gary Becker, Nobel Prize winner. This isn't, this isn't a, a kind of crank on the margins. Okay, and now, and now it's mainstream, isn't it? No, no one's querying. So all the talk about immigration on the Brexit debate and immigration into Europe, what about immigration for the rich? Let's talk about immigration for the rich. Let's not focus on immigration for the poor. That's a, that's a clever device by the Nigel Farage's of this world, dare I say it, um, to, to, you know, it's kind of misdirection. Really. Anyway, that was an aside. No, no, and, and having hit absolute rock bottom yeah, now okay, we've with, done Becca. with Becca and, and, and Mr. Farage. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I suppose that um, my question really is, I mean, that's obviously ridiculous. That has to be something positive. All of this work, all these smart people, not necessarily of the, the Mont Pelerin yeah. um, uh, Chicago School, right? but there has to be something that economics can give so there has to be some positives out there, whether it's uh, talking, you know, whether it's in the, the, the great battles of our time, taking on inequality, taking on climate change. You know, what are, what are, what are the positive things that economics has, the discipline has, that, that you know, that obviously aren't found in some of the people we've talked about already, mm -hmm. but nevertheless are there and that you can see and that we should be leaning on as we try and take on the big challenges uh, of the future? Okay, well, uh, there are... I think lots of examples I could give, but uh, you mentioned inequality. Yeah. Um, and I think it, we, you know, we need to knock on the head this idea that um, the kind of dominant view among uh, the economics profession is that inequality is, is a wonderful thing, um, or that inequality is somehow a necessary evil. You know, there's a trade-off. You know, we can have economic growth or we can have inequality, but we can have both. Well, um, economists have buried that, really. It, it, that, that, that's, that's, that's dead and buried, that, that idea that you can't have both. So, you know, inequality is definitely bad for the economy and economic growth. So even in these narrow terms, I mean, I, you know, I want to emphasise, of course, we care about inequality for all sorts of other reasons too. But if, we, if we're just on the debate, if you like, as framed sometimes by those on the right, you know, oh, if only we could have a more equal society, but we'd have this price to pay in terms of economic growth. You know, if we divide the pie up more equally, the pie shrinks that idea. If we just focus on that and why that's nonsense and why economists have said so. Um, one, uh, if we start from where we are today in countries like uh, with high inequality like the US and the UK, um, we've got all the uh, young people from poor backgrounds who've got lots of talent, but because we don't have any social mobility really to speak of anymore, they don't, they can't get the education and the training they need to develop their talent. Um, they can't borrow the money they need to be an entrepreneur and start their own business. They don't have a family to fall back on. You know, if they, they started a business and it went bust, they'd be destitute. That would be end of. That's why all the evidence is there that, you know, the startup entrepreneurs tend to all come from relatively well-off yeah. backgrounds yeah. because they've got a family to fall back on. So, so there's number one reason why uh, of, of what inequality is, why it's bad for economic growth. Number two is... Um, on the, on the other side of it, rather than look at the poor, if we look at the rich, well, uh, you know, in short, uh, money buys power. Money buys political power. So if you've got a few people in society who've got an awful lot of money, 
then they can buy a lot of political power, and we see that, of course. Um, so, and again, statistically, you can point to the way in which um, you can do a case study analysis of individual billionaires <coughs> and what how they've influenced the political process, or you can look at it in the round. But again, it's, it's, it's unarguable that you end up um, bending economic policy and regulations, what, what's sometimes called you know, socialism for the rich, bank bailouts, uh, regulatory arrangements which suit big, certain big corporations and rich individuals, a tax system which hands lots of money to the already rich and they don't do anything useful with it, etc., um, etc. Et so you've got that. That's another reason why inequality is bad for economic growth. And final reason, perhaps the most obvious of all, is we're now in a society where capitalism is churning out all this stuff and most people can't afford to buy it. Simple as that. Okay, you know, why have we got debt? Because people can't afford to buy the stuff. People can't afford to main their, maintain their standard of living. You know, if there's, a, if there's something hopeful here, um, it, you, know, uh, the, you know, the kind of, if you take the kind of Marxian thing, you look for the way in which capitalism will kind of eat itself up and undermine itself. And certainly, I think that inequality is getting to a level now where we're stuck with low economic growth because people can't afford to buy the stuff, basically. We've got underconsumption going on on a, on a very simple kind of Keynesian view. So, so there's that. There's that constraint. And there's the way in which um, uh, you know, a, an economy, a capitalist economy, can't flourish without a supporting set of institutions all around it. You know, with trust and political, pro, you know, robust political institutions that can regulate and ensure competition and all that. And again, we've got so much inequality that there's so much uh, power in the hands of the rich that they are corroding that and eroding that. And there's rent-seeking left, right, and centre, and that's and so the competition's being, um, you know, disappearing in large parts of the economy and so on. So there's those. You know, it, it can't go on forever. Inequality is getting to a point where it's really undermining the capitalist institutions, let alone all the obvious uh, catastrophic social harm it's doing. Brilliant. Uh, look, there's so much more we could talk about. I know you're not a fan of nudge theory, for example. Maybe that'll come out in the Q&A. But um, I, think, I think we need to open this conversation up. So there are a couple of mics um, hand shot up over there. So... So I'll, we'll do, we'll, for the start, we'll do one question at a time, and then we'll maybe group a bit later. So if you just speak directly into the microphone. Yeah, thank so you. Picks up um, one of the first things you, you referred to quite accurately, that everyone you discussed was male. Yeah. Um, why and can this, will this change? Um, ooh, the why question. Um, I'm not, I don't feel competent enough of a historian of economic institutions or a sociologist to be able to kind of pin, to be able to confidently say, well, there was discrimination in, in um, academic institutions, in, you know, promoting people and so on, and, and women not coming through. And I can think of a concrete example, because, you know, I talk a lot about the Nobel Prize winners. So now we've got, we've got one Nobel Prize winning economist ever who's a woman, Eleanor Ostrom, who got it, what, five years ago, something like that. So all the rest are men, but there's one woman, Eleanor Ostrom. But before Eleanor came along, for many years, many economists said, well, there's, there's a woman called Joan Robinson, a Cambridge economist, who deserves the Nobel Prize. And she never got it. Um, and it's widely believed that the fact she was a woman was a factor, but it wasn't the only factor. 
um, ideologically, she was critical. And I, uh, you know, right at the end of the book, I quote her on, on learning economics. Um, what Joan Robinson said is that the, um, the purpose of studying economics is not to get a set of ready-made answers to questions. It's to learn how to stop being deceived by economists. <laughs> um, and, you know, so someone who says that, and I set aside the fact that later in life she became a bit of a Marxist. Just, just that, that comment about to not be deceived by, well, that wasn't going to go down well with the, uh, the Nobel Prize winning committee, Nobel Prize committee deciding. Um, I mean, looking today, I mean, it is getting better. Um, but, um, you know, you mentioned uh, Harjun Chang, uh, said something nice about the book on the back. Um, I, know, I know Harjun Chang because he's also in Cambridge. And um, he has done some interesting work with a colleague where essentially um, people would give economists, academic economists around the world, were required to kind of say, do they strongly agree or strongly disagree with a series of statements? About, about the economy, about inequality, about trade, about globalisation, all sorts of things. Okay? But, the, but, but what was, what was de- done was there were two versions. They were given the statement, which was a, a genuine quotation from a real economist, and they were told the name of the economist, okay? the real name of the economist. And so it was, you know, blah, 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 John Maynard Keynes. You know, do you strongly agree or strongly disagree? But then there was another version done where a different name was attached to it. So you took the same quote and you said Milton Friedman said that rather than John Maynard Keynes. And I mean, and, and it was, and remember the, the, the target audience for this were economists. So these statements had to be chosen carefully. So it was something that plausibly could have been said by Friedman when in fact, in truth, it was said by Keynes. Anyway, the result was to see how people, uh, the pattern of responses agreeing and disagreeing, changed when you changed who allegedly said it. Okay? And one of the findings from that research, and it's a very rich set of experiments they did, one of the findings that's coming out of that is if you switched it from a kind of big-name male economist to a slightly less well-known female economist, the, the, it went... There was a big shift mm. from people saying, no, I disagree with that. Mm. So there's clearly still something going on. Gentleman on the left here. Thanks very much. This is fascinating. I haven't had time yet to read your book, but I'm trying to work out what has been driving this if it wasn't a purely political and ideological thing. I mean, it was obviously partly that. But I'm wondering to what extent it was the type of methodology that economics has employed and has bec- and became ever more rigid. I suppose it's probably weakening in the last 10 or 20 years to an extent. Um, the very kind of a priori kind of starting from ideas and then modeling that mathematically, which, as you said, was perceived as being more scientific. Yeah. Actually, as uh, a biologist before I became an economist, um, it's actually anti-scientific. But I wonder to what extent that kind of methodology um, perception um, shaped the way things developed. Absolutely. I mean, I think that that is um, just as important. You know, I wouldn't want to say which is more important, but there are the ideological currents um, that emerged post-war, but equally important, I would say, 
with this methodological turn towards saying economics should be thought of as a science, its language should be mathematics. We need to, you know, and leaving behind politics and history and so on. I mean, those two are interlinked, um, of course. The, the ideological turn might want to leave behind some uncomfortable politics and history. And if you leave behind politics, you stop asking distributional questions about who gets what. Um, so it's convenient in some ways to turn towards, um, towards mathematics. But there was... You know, um, someone like Ken Arrow was, you know, primarily saw himself as a mathematician. Um, there's a whole interesting... Mr. Uh, Democracy is Impossible. Yeah, the Mr. Democracy is Impossible. He, but, I mean, he, you know, um, he did great work in all sorts of areas of economics, and I don't want to imply that he didn't. And I'm very clear in the book that, if you like, what's wrong with what Arrow did is not what he said about his own work, but what other people who then came along and misrepresented it. But... Um, so yes, these people see themselves, saw themselves <coughs> as mathematicians and wanting to have a mathematical science of society, and they saw that in, in crudely in ideologically neutral terms. And so that was a very important, a very very important part of the of the way in which economics developed. I mean, the interesting question is where we are today. Um, so some areas of economics have have stripped out the ideology, but we've still got. We've still got the mathematics. We've still got this idea that, well, unless, unless we model it, it's not economics. Yeah. I'm going to take three questions uh, at a time just because there's so many people want to get into. There was a lady I'll there. I'll try and cut my answers. <coughs> Sorry. Sure. Uh, there's a gentleman front here and uh, a lady just behind um, thank you very much. Um, you mentioned nudge. I'd love to know a bit more. I was quite taken with its effect on things like pension enrolment, organ yeah. donation, so I'd be really interested to hear what you've got to say about that. By pure coincidence, I wanted to build on that because behavioural economics goes beyond the science into the fallibility of humans and the emotional and the rational and how sometimes we don't take decisions in our own best interest. So what are the things that we could still do as society, governments, politicians that we could simply switch on or nudge, opt-ins or whatever that would be better for social mobility and changing that balance? And there's a lady just behind you. If you just pass it back. Thank you. Thank you. Bridget Knapper from Economy for the Common Good. What, in your view, needs to change in the current economic system in order for us to have a fairer society and one that safeguards the environment for the future? Crikey. So you, you <laughs> Just a small one to finish there. Just a small one. So you've got nudge and then saving the world. Yeah, <laughs> nudge, saving the world. Okay, so... Um, and I've got to be quick. Um, so, um, well... Uh, I mean, what, what's not to like about, um, you know, having a default being opted into a pension? Or maybe, in my view, there's not much not to like about having a default opted into organ donation would be a classic example. You know, you c as long as it's really clear and, and, and explicit and everyone knows that they're default opted in and they can choose to opt out, um, there's, so there's a lot uh, going for it. And behavioural economics seems to have... A lot going for it and, it, and it's true. It's a big step forward on 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 a completely unrealistic model and set of models about how humans behave. Um, what's missing with nudge um, and what's missing with behavioural economics? It's the same thing actually. It's that um, they both got this idea that the problem with humans is we're not Homo economicus. 
Okay? We're not these calculating robots who can take in limitless amounts of information, process it, and reach the optimal decision. And if only we could be. Okay? And it's the if only we could be that's the problem with a lot of behavioural economics and nudge. Not, not all of it, but the dominant strand of behavioural economics that's been kind of incorporated from Kahneman Tversky that's been incorporated in economics. So... Um, I can't, there's a complicated example I can give about pensions. I'm not going to do that, <laughs> I'm afraid. My, my, an example I would give you is if you've wondered why um, we're constantly being berated in, in the UK to change our bank account, change our mobile phone contract, um, change your electricity supplier, that's behavioural economics saying, well, OK, we know that people have got inertia. They'll just stick with what they've got. We know that's a problem, but we want people to be more like homo economicus. We want people more like to be this economic person. We want people to be more like that. So let's give you loads of information. Let's keep nudging you to, make, to, 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 ch um, um, to, to change your electricity supplier. And it's completely ignoring that strand of behavioural economics, the idea that we don't want to live like that. Okay, people don't want to spend their week, week, weekend thinking, oh, I know, I'll decide, I'll change my electricity supplier this afternoon. Or, you know, you go and buy a train ticket. And again, it's, it's not, you know, you can go to other countries, it's not the same. We just take for granted in the UK that a single costs 10p less than a return. Yeah. Why? Because we're not to be trusted for cheating the system. And also because, well, you can, we can profit maximise by putting up the price of a single. And, of course, there are always 30 different rail tickets you can buy to the same destination. Because it's good, isn't it? Because that's competition. And that's bound to work better. And if it's, it, you know, and if it's not working, then you give people more information and have even more choice. Okay? And, that, and so what's, what the payroll economics is missing, it's, got a, it's not got, you know, to use the academic jargon, a normative element an ethical account of what kind of society we want to be and what kind of people we want to be. That's what's missing. I want um, to take one... Oh, yeah, the, the, well, the what's the... Saving the world. Oh, saving the world, um, yeah, sorry. Uh, well, with, on climate change, we need, to, we need to stop... <laughs> on climate change, I don't think... I really don't think economics has got much to say. I really don't. I've already said why I don't think it's got much to say about how much we should do. And then the other aspect of climate change is once we've decided how serious the problem is and what our target is and how much we want to cut carbon emissions, how quickly. Once we've decided that, and I say I don't think economics can help answer that question, once we've decided that, um, we can use economics to help deliver it by using carbon markets and so on. But actually, most economists are reluctantly coming around to the view that you know, markets are only a tiny part of the problem, tiny part of the solution here, sorry, that um, the massive change we need to decarbonise the economy is going to need planning. You know, people analogise it with with war, um, uh, uh, Ocasio-Cortez and the Green New Deal people, they get this. So, um, um, and it, when The Economist was, was kind of shaking its head a bit at the, at the Green New Deal and saying, well, no, we need to do a cost-benefit analysis, uh, The Economist, they, they, unwittingly, The Economist magazine exactly nailed what's, what's the problem with that, the way economists think about delivering decarbonisation through markets. They said, well, I suppose it's like when we were, had the, um, we were fighting fascism, we didn't have a fascism tax. And that's exactly it. You know, what we're dealing with here, a fascism tax or a fascism market is not the way to solve the problem. So I don't think economists have got much to contribute to, to tackling climate change. I really don't. But, but lots in other areas. 
I wanted to take one more round of questions, but actually I think we're out of time, I'm afraid. So look, um, we are going to have to wrap up. Thank you all for coming for your, your excellent questions. If you didn't get a chance to ask Jonathan your question this time, he is going to be yeah. uh, outside Absolutely. in the foyer where he'll be signing copies of this excellent book. I thoroughly recommend you read it. I suspect you will after what we've talked about today. It's been a fantastic ride. Um, if you'd like to know more about the RSN, you can update with our own efforts to, uh, well, uh, not be bad, be good, <laughs> to move the world on. Uh, do sign up for our website, for our events, projects, newsletters. Head downstairs to our coffee house, Rothmel's now, for lunch or a coffee. You're very likely to bump into a fellow or a staff member. I might be mooching about as well. Let's find out a little bit more about our current work and how you can get involved. But for now, please uh, join me once again in thanking our terrific speaker. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.